rumor, a currently circulating story or report of uncertain or questionable truth. This is Rumors of Grace, where I talk to people rumored to have found beauty and truth in broken and uncommon places. Well, welcome, friends, to another episode of Rumors of Grace. I'm excited to have Mr. Mike Morrell on today. And uh, before we jump right in on the Zoom cast, I guess you could call it, I'll read you his bio and that'll give you a little bit of background because you may not recognize his name, but you're going to recognize some of the things he's done. So uh, let me start with that. Mike's the collaborating author with Father Richard Rohr on the book, The Divine Dance, The Trinity and Your Transformation. He's also the founder of Wisdom Camp, and he's a founder, a founding organizer of the Justice Arts and Spirituality Wild Goose Festival. Mike curates contemplative and community experiences via relational skills and uh, rewilder. We're going to learn about that. Taking joy and holding spaces for the extraordinary transformation that can take place at the intersection of anticipation, imagination, and radical acceptance. Michael is with his wife and two daughters in Asheville, North Carolina. And you can read uh, Mike's ongoing exploration of spirit culture and permaculture at mikemorell.org. Mike, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Bob. It's great to be here. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, you, now you're in Asheville, correct? Uh, North Carolina? I am. Okay. Yes. And uh, how are you adjusting to the pandemic and the social distancing for you and your family? Oh man, you know, it's uh, it's been a little bit of an adjustment, but I imagine maybe not as severe as it is for some folks mm. because I work from home anyway, so it's not a huge transition to mm. be at home a lot. Right. And you know, I know you've been discussing mental health on the, the podcast lately. I ha- have had my own fun nervous system odyssey this past year, whereas this time about a year ago, I began having really frequent panic attacks. And, you know, it drove me really deep into some questions and some practices and some different ways to understand my neurology, my physiology, my emotional makeup. But nonetheless, I feel like I kind of got a nice dress rehearsal for quarantine because there was a time at the height of my anxiety last year where I would not sit down in restaurants. I would only get to go food. So it's kind of like the rest of the world's catching up with me a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. Well, well, that kind of leads me to my, my point. Before we get into working with co-writing the book with, with, with Richard Rohr, maybe this is a good, good segue into your training and your background, which you're referred to as a futurist. So I guess you were just practicing what you're trained in. (laughs) (laughs) It's true. Being able to, to anticipate weak signals of change, to be able to anticipate wild card futures. These are all skills that I've cultivated as a futurist in training or as my wife puts it, I've, I've been training for the apocalypse my entire life. Um, <laughs> not, that, not, that fu- not that futurism or strategic foresight is inherently apocalyptic. You know, to the contrary, it tends to be optimistic in its yeah. outlook. But apocalypse, as, as you might know, really simply means unveiling. It means a revealing of what is. It is not inherently negative, all badly written 90s Tim LaHaye novels aside. And yeah, the field of of strategic foresight, aka futurism, has been a really valuable one. 
you know, humans have cultivated visionary awareness as long as we've been humans, whether we're talking about prophets, poets, sages, seers. You know, I think of the, the New Testament Apostle Paul, who tried cultivating a vision of these alternative communities that existed in the shadow of the empire that, you know, broke bread together and formed an alternative kind of fraternal organization where they saw each other as family and, and gathered around common meals. And, you know, he famously wrote, where there is no vision, the people perish. So I think we've always cultivated vision. But starting in the 20th century, there was an even more intentional layer put on that by certain sectors of society, including in America. You know, America had just come out of the 19th century where we were pretty isolated, pretty isolationist. And then we were plunged into, you know, there was the Great War, aka World War I, and then World War II. And in between those two world wars, uh, there were various military organizations that began to take a more disciplined look at the future and say, you know, what is it that we can know about a range of possible future scenarios? And so it drew from war games and war strategy to attempt to look at the future. And, you know, it, it sprung from the military and, and weapons manufacturing to, you know, the second most ethical field, which is various oil corporations. Um, you know, they began to jump on board. And, and eventually, it eventually spread even to nonprofits and more you know, peace and love types. And, and it's, a, it's a framework and it's a set of skills where we do look at a range of possible future scenarios using both quantitative means, looking at statistics and probabilities, as well as qualitative means, like looking at the science fiction stories that a culture produces that are indicative of the ways in which we're seeing the future. And it's partially a predictive tool to look at a range of, of potential futures but it's mostly an aspirational tool. It's wanting to help people create their preferred futures, to look at a range of possible futures and to proactively create and advocate for the future that we wish to see. I love that. I love that. You know, you and I have some things in common on that. I'm in my line of work, I ran a, a marketing agency for 17 years. I still consult mm. and I do a lot of not not just branding, but kind of future thinking for companies, helping them position themselves. And I'm and I'm often referred to as a futurist. And you know, while that can be, I believe it's kind of a gift. It's something you can also study, obviously, and learn from. But it comes with its burdens too. I know that in, in your line of work and some of the things that you've done, you you tend to to kind of live in that ancient ancient modern space, which seems kind of like an oxymoron. <laughs> but as someone who's studying strategic futures, who's also who's always looking ahead to the way things may be. And, you know, as I look at things like the Wild Goose Festival, we'll talk a little bit about that in a minute. We'll talk about some of your work and your writing. You're always kind of thinking about the evolution of things. But at the same time, you walk this interesting line of calling on the ancients, going back to history and a lot of things to determine how it will guide its future. Am I reading you correctly in that? You are indeed. Yeah, you are indeed. I think that oftentimes we get caught in these binaries. So, you know, for instance, I would say that a lot of a lot of religious folks by orientation tend to celebrate and wish to conserve the past. 
especially an idealized past, depending on what your persuasion is will depend on what that is. So if you're a, you know, a mainline Protestant, the, pa- the, the idealized past could be the Protestant Reformation. If you're a more conservative evangelical, it's certainly the Protestant Reformation. If you're a Pentecostal Christian, it's like the first century church in Acts where people are, you know, ostensibly being healed left and right. You know, there have always been these various movements of, of religious revival of going back to a golden age. The, the Protestant Reformation itself was influenced by a general enlightenment idea of going back to the sources in, in the more, you know, it gave birth to secular culture for the first time, going back to the sources of Aristotle and, and Greek logic and recovering these texts. And, you know, Roman Catholic Christians began going back to the sources of biblical writings to, to find inspiration. So there's this sort of, you know, inherently backward looking, um, looking at, you know, sources of inspiration that often motivates a lot of religious folks. On the other hand, you know, I would say increasingly in, you know, starting at least in during, paradoxically starting during the Renaissance, but especially moving forward into, you know, 19th century, 20th century, there was also a, a very strong progressive movement. And I don't necessarily mean narrowly in a political sense, though it can certainly be that too, but it's about looking toward the future and aspirational thinking. So for instance, I sit on the board of an organization called the Christian Transhumanist Association. And it's a um, group of faith-oriented- I that on the on the on my podcast. Yeah, you said you have or you want to? I have, yeah. Yeah, you said you've, had, you've had my friend on. Yeah, he's, he's here in Nashville. Mm-hmm. That's right, that's right, awesome. So yeah, so, so transhumanism, and you know, Micah probably did a much better job than I'll, I'll, I'm about to do describing it, but transhumanism is inherently a future orientation. It's inherently a, a pro-technology, uh, pro-innovation orientation that says, hey, we are clever creatures and we can solve problems and we can create uh, futures that even transcend our current problems. We can, we can create you know, these really beautiful scenarios and, and what motivates a lot of Christian transhumanists is this idea, eschatologically speaking, that the last enemy is death and that there is a way in which Jesus leads us to transcend death. And some Christian transhumanists, my friend Micah being one of them, interprets that pretty literally, looking into longevity research, for instance, and says, you know, how could we potentially transcend, you know, mortality and why not? So you have these two, you know, different orientations out there. One that looks for inspiration in the past and sometimes tends to be very fearful about people with, with future and innovation orientations. And you have people who look towards this idea of, you know, the, the arc of the moral universe bends toward progress um, and things are moving forward. And they tend to look askance at anyone who is overly enamored with the past. Well, I have trouble exclusively limiting myself to either of those perspectives because I feel like one has great critiques of the other. You know, a, a forward-minded person rightly points to things that were accepted in previous eras that we now consider unethical, you know, levels of, of racism and sexism and, and ethnocentrism that were, are just not okay. But people with that very same moral conscience rightly critique um, an overly optimistic and, and scientistic worldview, not scientific, but scientistic, where we assume that anything science is doing is, you know, A-OK, and it's where we need to go. By looking at the 20th century and early 21st century as an example of, you know, 
to, to break Godwin's law here for a minute, Hitler had amazing scientists who were, you know, driving research, but to really terrible ends. And the entire war machine is a way of applying technology to be the most efficient at killing the entire you know, thing, the entire tradition of scientific management is about how to extract maximum labor from people and give them minimal rest on the job to the point where, you know, Amazon warehouses have drones tracking their employees' bathroom breaks and penalizing them if they have too many biological functions. So I think there is a good reason to to hold both in abeyance, to hold both in paradoxical relationship with each other and say, the past is fair game to gain wisdom from. And we do seem to have this sort of God-given creativity that can synthesize new realities for ourselves. I love that. I love that. It seems as though we, we, you know, we live our lives open to things that are modern and that are scientific, but yet sometimes when we go to religion, we we take things literally rather than applying them to our modern day. It's and true. It's yeah. Yeah, it's true. And and at the same time, like, you know, my, my tagline on my blog is exploring spirit culture and permaculture. That last word in the sentence may or may not be familiar for some listeners, but permaculture design is a movement that takes its inspiration from nature and indigenous societies before the advent of complex agriculture and says, how can we build, build our human-shaped spaces in ways that are a blessing rather than a burden on our natural habitats? So, you know, there are ways that you can build a home to where, you know, it's facing the sun at a certain time of day and, you know, at sunrise versus sunset that makes for maximum efficiency in heating and cooling. Whereas a lot of modern construction is done completely ignoring these principles and, and, you know, costing a lot more for artificial heating and air. There are ways to plant perennial edible plants that comparatively have a lot less intensity to them than complex agriculture with its, you know, harvesting seasons. There's just a lot of, of wisdom in biomimicry and in, in imitating nature. And for some of my transhumanist friends, that seems very like a very primitive future. But I see it as let's look at wisdom where wisdom is. And I think it's not that hard to take a sober look at where we are now with runaway climate change and say, our current technocratic solutions aren't helping. And that's not to say that there can't be some technological innovations that could be promising, you know, electric vehicles, for instance. But sometimes when I look at these really complicated schematics for these vast machines that are supposed to clean the air, and then I look at what's happening right now in the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic and when people are sheltering in place, how things begin to clear up, I think maybe there's a lot simpler solution to some of our problems. Maybe we have all the technology on hand that we need, say solar and wind technology, but if we simply have the political will and the moral imagination and a community center of gravity, we can apply some of our best innovations to a far simpler lifestyle and begin to live in a more harmonious relationship with the land that does look kind of ancient future in its orientation. Yeah, yeah, I love that. I love that. Let's let's circle back to this because I know you're working on a project regarding to it, but I want to talk a little bit about some of your your co-writing that you did with Father Richard Rohr. I know 
personally, I'm a huge fan. That book was hugely influential, The Divine Dance, mm-hmm. in my life. And I know a lot of my listeners. What was it like to, to work with him? Thank you. Yeah, it was a real privilege to get to work with him. You know, I, I had known Father Richard for probably about a decade before we collaborated on that project, just through different event organizing that I've done. Back in the day with a gathering called Solarize, a learning party, and of course, as one of the co-founders of the Wild Goose Festival, Father Richard was a huge supporter, especially in the early years when he traveled more and was at, at these kinds of gatherings. And you know, in another hat I wear when I'm not putting together gatherings, I, I am a, an author and I'm a freelance writer, and I also work in publishing, assisting other authors and publishers launching their books through a, a network and a service I offer called Speakeasy. So having worked in, you know, publishing for a number of years, I had a, a, I have a good friend, Don Milam, who is an acquisitions editor for a publishing house called Whitaker House. And, and he was really looking uh, to publish something of Father Richards. And I was aware there was this wonderful material on the Trinity that, were, that lived as an audio from a conference, audio recordings, but had never been turned into book form. And I would say, you know, right up there with The Shack, the novel The Shack, which I, I helped launch um, back in 2007, that this conference material was really formative on my vision of God as Trinity, my vision of God as relationship. And, and I really wanted to see that birthed in the world. And so I approached Richard about that. And thankfully, he was amenable. And we began to, to collaborate on the manuscript form that you see. And it was just wonderful to be able to work with him on that. That's wonderful. I, I know you got a lot of positive and some negative feedback. What, what, <laughs> yeah. what kind of, what kind of, I'm curious to know what kind of feedback you've had and can you give us like a taste of that and kind of the transformation it may have had in people's lives? Sure. Well, I think that the feedback was overwhelmingly positive. People who you know, previously can barely relate to an idea of a relational God at all, never mind this sort of complicated, uh, convoluted divine math problem of the Trinity, began to see that it was less of a, an algebraic equation and more of a way of, of exploring God as relationship and the relationship between oneness and multiplicity. And that Father, Son, and Spirit are very enduring lenses of of revelation and of rich experience throughout the centuries, but they're also only three of the the, the layers or masks or personae that we can see God inhabiting, and that it's about this dynamism, this this threefold dynamism that's even different than a sort of dyadic uh, duality, where it's you know maybe what we think of as a sort of a, a romantic model or a you know a two way relational model, but adding that that third layer in there, that ternary metaphysic makes it more dynamic and also inherently unstable in a way in which it has to keep on moving. Uh, you know, a three-legged stool can work. It's not as, as sort of uh, stodgy as a four-legged stool. There's this something that, that invites another when you have three. And so I would say most people, whether they explicitly grasp that or not, intuitively get it. They intuitively understand the relational and dynamic um, essence of what we're going for and really appreciated that. And of course, there was a minority of voices 
for whom I would say we weren't probably their prime, they, they're not our primary audience, but people who were, you know, having their sort of theological checklist out to see if we, we checked everything. And, and even though I would say we're firmly rooted in, in the Christian tradition and we were very much saturated in, in scripture and exploring, you know, the Bible's witness to these realities, that it wasn't quite pleasing, especially for folks of a more Calvinist bent especially those who have a very sort of rigid and hierarchical view of the Trinity. The, the actually, the case could be made is technically the heretical view, because the whole idea of Trinity is that there's this co-equality within the Godhead. But for a lot of contemporary evangelicals, there's this whole idea of, of headship and chains of command that is so important to that whole system where it falls apart, you know, that pastors have to be the unquestioned head of their church and that men need to be the unquestioned heads of their home and everything, you know, has this very cemented place. And in our exploration of, of the Trinity as this, as this divine dance, this uh, perichoresis of, of mutual self-giving love and mutual regard, that turns that whole vision inside out. So we didn't really appeal to those folks, but I suppose that's okay. We can live with that. Well, it was very transformative, I know, for me and for others that I know who have read it, because this idea of, uh, of a Trinitarian God, which is uniquely Christian, really does have, in, in, in some of the traditional evangelical and even some of the more Orthodox, you might find it explained in some very static and in, in, in emphasizing the separateness of, of God. And mm-hmm. it, it's never been able to, it, it doesn't register, nor does it compute with the human mind. Obviously, then you go to, well, it's a mystery and you can't understand it, but you're mm-hmm. left with three separate entities that kind of operate on their own and one is angry, one appeases the other, one is kind of just who knows what it is. It's called the Holy Ghost. And it's just, it, it, it never did sit right uh, with me, I know. And yet yep. the way that you guys explain it in this book, this divine dance, this fellowship, this circle of three that's ever spinning and, and connected, it, it not only makes sense, I think, intellectually and emotionally, it makes sense I guess scientifically, I don't even. I dare I go there because it explains so much, so many other things in the universe. It's true. There, there does seem to be a threefold structure to you know many ideas in quantum physics, and I try to stay in my lane. I don't pretend to um, you know be an expert in those fields, and I also think sometimes religious folks can overstretch scientific resonances and correspondences and say that this definitely is that. And, uh, you know, I, I, try, I try to stay away from that. And yet there is a sort of coherence to, you know, ideas of atomic structure and, and, and more broadly speaking, the idea that matter is not so much this undifferentiated solid, but it's like a series of relationships between different constituent parts that are constantly moving, but in such rapid, you know, motion that they appear to be solid to us. And and I do think that's a, a uniquely and riskily Christian idea that it's it's risky amongst our monotheistic uh, siblings in faith, the uh, Jewish and Muslim folks, because they tend to emphasize more of an undifferentiated unity when they speak of monotheism. You know, the Shema, the hero Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one 
There is no other. Even though the mystics of those traditions also recognize that there is no other, refers to all of reality and not simply God. And we know, of course, that that is only true from one perspective. From another perspective, there's infinite others. There's infinite variety, infinite manifestation of, of the one. And so, you know, I think Father Richard and I are trying to propose that the Trinity is this sort of holographic representation of reality. That, you know, even if I were talking to one of my friends who's, you know, a materialist or an atheist who doesn't see or recognize a spiritual dimension to things, if they accept Big Bang cosmology, which is, you know, currently our, our best model of how the universe came into being, then we can say that all of reality was originally one dense point of matter that then exploded into the infinite variety that we see today. But it begs the question of, is it any less one thing than it was at that point when it was this super dense singularity? Or has it simply differentiated its manifestation? And I would argue that that is the case, that we are still this one energy that's in motion, that's exploding, and we should honor the differentiation. It's not a mistake. And sometimes, you know, certain forms of Veda Hinduism that emphasize oneness or monism tend to say that this world of form and manifestation is illusory, is, uh, is an illusion. And I respectfully disagree. I think that there's a reason why we have all this form and manifestation, even if part of it is simply the play of seeing through it and seeing how we are all connected in surprising ways. But God as Trinity also preserves the integrity of, of the different, you know, the personae that, that exist both within, you know, our, this vision of the Godhead as well as each other. And it says that my oneness with you, Bob, doesn't mean we have to agree with everything. It doesn't mean we have to literally be the same person. We can uh, be dynamic and we can flow together and we can also maintain distinctives. And to me, that is a, a spirituality, a vision of God that promises the best of both worlds. That's well said. That's well said. You know, you touched on something there in your comments. You know, the one thread that I see running through all time and religions, Mike, and into the future that seems to be potentially untouched by almost anything it is contemplation and mysticism. First of all, would you agree with that? And then can you help me put a layman's definition on those things? Because when someone hears a contemplative life or contemplation, and then you start talking about mysticism or mystic, it has all kinds of, of things attached to it from, from various experiences and backgrounds. But I find that not only is it the most ancient way, uh, but it is the most human and elementary way, and it is the way through and the way into, I think, into the future. That's my opinion. I'd love to hear yours. Sure. Yeah. So two-part question there. One, you know, do I agree that that mysticism or contemplation is this sort of unifying and enduring factor throughout all you know, religious and spiritual paradigms, and then to what is, you know, contemplative spirituality? What is mysticism anyway? I think those are both really good questions. To the first one, I would say a qualified yes. And I, I qualify it because I think that, you know, for those of us who maybe are, you know, those who are listening, who maybe come from a, a more conservative religious background, say evangelical, and you've begun deconstructing, um, the idea that 
all roads lead to this one undifferentiated path is super appealing compared to the kind of narrow sectarianism we grew up with where all that was emphasized were distinctives. It was all about how, say, Christianity was, and, and our particular denomination of Christianity was the only true path. Everybody else was going to hell. All these, you know, poor, terrible, unwashed heathens out there were, you know, just missing out. And, you know, for those of us who, who grew up with that until recently, it's indicative of, of some of our parent faith traditions wrestling with modernity and, and even going back into medieval times where that was like a commonly held view where you might go your entire life without meeting someone from another uh, religious background. And so it was relatively easy to think that one way was the only way. And again, you know, beginning with the Renaissance and then moving, you know, even accelerating into the 19th century, there began to be people that began to formulate uh, religious belonging and pluralism along other lines and began to say, you know what, we actually have a lot in common if we think about it. And in some uh, philosophers and mystics developed what is known as the perennial philosophy, where it's a, an attempt to, to look at these, you know, seemingly universal themes that everyone uh, shares in common that, that there's, you know, this transcendence and this beauty and this place and stillness where we could, we're seeking redemption. And people began to like trace this arc of, you know, whether you're a, a Buddhist in the far East or you're, you know, a, a Christian spiritual seeker that were sort of, you know, going from this place of feeling this alienation and lack. And then, you know, what is it that, that, you know, what is that technology or that samsara or that, you know, that insight that can lead to, to a reunification. And I like so much about uh, perennial philosophy but it does have a shadow side. And the shadow side, I be believe, began to be explored by the postmodern philosophical movement and even contemporary uh, people who care a lot about justice and equity and representation for minority cultures and, and religion. And, and these folks would say that some of the pioneers of perennial philosophy, as enlightened as they might be, were primarily white European men who would go into, say, a, you know, a very brown-skinned Muslim territory and say, you know, there's this thing in your religion that's really enlightened, and we're going to call that Sufism. And we're going to say that this is a mystical path that aligns with my ideas of what uh, mystical transcendence is supposed to be. This is the best part about your religion. And on the one hand, it was a step forward for a European person who was completely phobic of anything that was another religion. But on the other hand, it was almost like a fabricated, extracted, idealized, very palatable <laughs> to white people version of a particular religion and saying, and, and it's very patronizing in a certain way, saying, I'm telling you this is the best part about your path. And so to me, that's the shadow side of, of sort of essentializing what makes all religion the best. And I think it can live on into this day in a, in a well-meaning uh, kind of baby boomer perennialism and, and non-duality that neglects the unique specificities of various cultures and places and times and says, maybe we're not all going to the same path. Maybe we actually do have genuinely different things that we're we're aiming for, and it could actually be really rich to stand in that difference in a way that where we don't want to kill each other. Like that's that's progress to not want to you know <laughs> murder each other or consign each other to our our religion's hell. But maybe there's a way to kind of lean into the uncomfortability and say, 
uh, you know, is nirvana the same thing as heaven? Well, no, not exactly. Let's look at that. So my, my particular mantra is uh, specificity without exclusivity, that I am interested in specifically inhabiting the Christian narrative and, and geeking out over many of its particulars without thinking that this is a one-to-one representation with reality, that I have to make other people jump through these hoops in order to be metaphysically okay or even you know, emotionally and, and relationally okay in this life. So I, I like specificity uh, without exclusivity. And at the same time, let me completely contradict myself and say that I do think that there is something to be said for this contemplative core that many world religions paths do have. And taking it on its own merits, there seem to be practitioners of all of these faiths who do feel a lot of affinity with one another when they get together to meditate and to chant and to sing and to work in the struggle for justice. And I think it is a reason why, um, you know, some of these are the most appealing aspects of various religious traditions and why a number of current, you know, younger spiritual but not religious folks and unaffiliated folks tend to want to select these sort of mystical and contemplative gems from the various paths. So that, that's my long-winded way of saying a qualified yes to your first question. Great. And can you help us, can you help me define a contemplative life of a mystic and in, in a layman's term that uh, makes sense in the context of 2020? <laughs> mm-hmm. Yes, Absolutely. I, I, one, one way that, that I think of it is that, you know, contemplative practices are awareness training. It's a way of training our awareness to let more, more depth and more sweetness in, in everyday moments. So it's not about changing our external circumstances. There are other practices that are valuable for changing external circumstances, and I'm a fan of those as well. But it's, it's awareness training. And, you know, one of my, my passions is, you know, sort of a, a layman's or journalistic look at anthropology and archaeology and what, you know, various researchers are saying about our origins as a species. And one of the things that I'm learning is that there, there are roots of our, into our contemplative practices that likely go back to our, our hunter-gatherer days, to our immediate return forager days. And the case can be made that Meditation, what we tend to think of as meditation regarding stillness, was originally a a masculine cultivated trait uh, on the hunt. So when men were going out hunting and needed to stay still for long periods of time so that their prey would even come close to them, that it was a certain kind of awareness training where men could embrace the void, could embrace stillness, and let you know, let things start to move in closer to them. And that that began to morph and evolve as some of our earliest stillness meditation practices. And conversely, the women who were primarily tasked with the gathering, which as an aside provided way more of the caloric intake of the tribe on average than hunting. Hunting was almost a happy accident when a man, you know, a band of men happened to fell some great beast. But a lot of it was, you know, the roots and the, um, you know, the plants that were foraged. But that was something that was a very tactile skill. And it was a very social skill. But it nonetheless was this very awareness training skill of being in, in touch with the rhythms of the earth and finding what was nourishing amidst the landscape. And anthropologists of religion believe that that 
began to morph into uh, different, more tactile awareness training, such as praying with beads, the sort of, you know, using beads in prayer. So, you know, as was developed by, say, you know, Sufis and, and Muslims. And our Christian tradition has, has both of those in it. We have the sort of silent contemplative training, and we also have things like praying the rosary. So there's these sort of archetypally speaking, masculine and feminine spiritual practices that are all very useful for the retraining of consciousness and, and you know, dipping into a deeper field of awareness, which can produce, well, you know, if we're wanting to get like vacation Bible school about it, the fruits of the spirit, the love, the joy, the peace, the patience, the things that our tradition says are the fruits of a well-cultivated life. These are the awareness trainings that are available to us in these various contemplative practices. That's good. That's good. I love that. Uh, that kind of leads us, leads me into kind of some of the things that, that you've given your life to and that you worked on. You know, you're, you're always um, using your kind of background and love for, you know, strategic futurism and looking at that mixed with these events for alternative ways of, of, of doing faith in Christianity. And so that leads me to my question that I, I'd like to camp on for the last few minutes is, you know, what do you see as the future of faith, religion, and church as we know it? I think if anything that we've seen over the last four years and good, bad, and different of what's happened in our country in America and philosophically, politically, even religious, things have shifted to, to extremes on both sides. And now, even through this pandemic, we've seen some interesting things happen when it comes to, to faith and practice. What is, what is, Mike, your, what do you see as the future of faith and religion and church as we know it? Mm-hmm. Yes, I, I would be hesitant to speak on the singular future of faith. I think that, you know, with my futurist hat on, we always speak of futures, plural, and a range of possibilities. And, and with that said, I, I'll spend most of my time and energy in replying on advocating for my preferred future of, of religion and faith. Uh, well, that's not, <laughs> yeah, that's not, it's not pie in the sky. I think it is, is data-based, but, but it is definitely, you know, the preferred because I think that it doesn't take, you know, it doesn't take a futurist to see a continual, continuous decline of many of our current religious forms. I think that there is, you know, widespread disillusionment uh, with the ability of many forms of religion to meet the challenges of today. We have, you know, this massive drop-off of millennials and Gen Z folks uh, in church attendance since even 2016, since the Trump election, as church-going Christian, rightly or wrongly, is branded with the sort of, you know, extreme right-wing evangelical that's associated with, with the current, you know, presidential administration. I, I think that's sad in some ways because as a marketer, I'm aware of the fact that there are lots of beautiful progressive Christian communities that just don't get the same airtime for whatever reason. I don't know if it's like a lazy journalistic trope to you know bring out Jerry Falwell Jr. and Franklin Graham whenever you want a Christian opinion on something instead of, I don't know, bringing out uh, Yvette Flunder or Jim Wallace or any number of you know, other, other voices that, that speak to a different way of being. 
But, but nonetheless, I think that there are some things that both conservative and progressive Christians, if we're talking about Christianity, miss in, in the overall equation. I think that for a while, it seemed like mainline Protestant church attendance and engagement was falling at a faster rate than more conservative churches. And they believed that it was because they were, you know, conservative Christians believed it was because they were willing to say hard truths that that actually had more staying power. And that, that, that was why they were able to retain their, their congregational size. And, uh, you know, and, and well-meaning Protestants were like, we have a better message. We have better theology. Like, why, why, aren't, why aren't the kids these days kind of packing it in? And now we're seeing a little bit more of an equalization in terms of uh, kind of a drop-off and engagement across the board. And my personal interpretation of that is that conservatives were half right, that people do tend to stick around longer if they're being challenged, but that the, the nature of the challenge that these the more conservative denominations thought was necessary, i.e. this very cerebral and, and narrow kind of you know, hellfire and brimstone, exclusion, culture warrior way of framing Christianity, that that was the nature of the challenge. I think that they're, they're mistaken in that. But I also think that more mainline Protestants and even like seeker sensitive evangelicals are wrong if they think that the way to growth is to make things as comfortable and easy as possible. I think, in fact, that people want to be challenged. They want to be offered a specific path And they want to know how that specific path is going to help them live a better life. And so, you know, the fact that we've seen an explosion of kind of pay-to-play spiritual services like yoga, or even, I would argue, CrossFit, where there's this tribe, there's a sense of belonging, there's this very specific path, there's something very particular to do, and people know what benefit it gives them. I think that for you know the Christianity of tomorrow or any any faith uh, tradition of tomorrow, including maybe ones that are only now emerging, there has to be this really powerful so what factor, and folks need to believe that there is a credible way to get from point A to point B. So in our tradition, Jesus promises that if we apprentice to Him, if we take on this you know easy burden and this light yoke we'll live an abundant life. And then there are these specific delineations of the character traits and the experiences that we should rightly expect if we're wanting to live this abundant life. And I feel like the late Dallas Willard really had his finger on that. And also uh, Richard Foster, when they developed uh, Renovare and they coined the term spiritual formation, as they were like trying to say, what are these practices that will, will get us there? And I also think that we need, we need a larger story that does fuel our our spiritual imagination, but doesn't sound like we're making up a problem in order to solve it. And I think that that is the credulity gap that Christianity presently has with the idea of an eternal conscious torment in hell. You know, the way that I'm reframing it with this nonprofit that I'm, I'm co-founding with my friend Rainier Wild, this group called Rewilder, is when we look at the sweep of anthropology and the story it tells of humanity, and the sweep of the biblical imagination and the parable that it tells of humanity, we see a striking correspondence. We see this space where in our infancy as humanity, we were immediate return foragers living off the abundance of the land for hundreds of thousands of years. 
And this isn't to over romanticize it. Yes, you could be, you know, eaten by wild animals or what have you. But by and large, the way that these societies were structured, they were egalitarian. The case can be made that organized warfare on a large scale simply did not exist. There was no reason for competition on that level because human population density was so low that it was much easier for two clashing tribes to simply walk in different directions than to fight over resources. There was this you know, really rich period after the Ice Age where our soil was rich, animals were everywhere, plants were everywhere. And this is where some of these awareness practices that we now call mysticism were just a fact of life. And it seems as though there was a unitive sense of consciousness, or at least an oceanic sense of consciousness, where uh, original Homo sapiens, we felt connected to the land. We felt this like spiritual connection with the land, what some modern anthropologists of religion would call animism, where we see spirit in every rock and tree and in the soil. And, you know, like the, like the old Disney movie said, you know, we paint with all the colors of the wind. There's a sense of this, you know, innate communion of creatures and also with your tribe. And you knew that you belonged and also the sense of spirit, the sense of the sacred with the changing of the seasons. Like there wasn't a question of, of this primordial belonging. And it does seem like in history, there was a shift in consciousness. And we don't know exactly why. We don't know which followed which. But we began to transition from being hunter-gatherers to being settled agrarians. And when we began to farm and we began to till, we're told by anthropologists and popularly, like say, with Jared Diamond in, in Guns, Germs, and Steel, that a lot of things seem to happen in short succession. Namely, there was a, a stratification of labor Whereas, you know, previously maybe men would hunt and women would gather, but both were absolutely necessary for feeding. Suddenly the plow could only be run by men and women were totally relegated to domesticity and became second-class citizens. And we began to have surplus because we were staying stationary in one place in time and, and we were growing extra food and there became to be haves and have-nots. There were the people who stewarded these surpluses and then those who had to live off of scraps. We had to figure out how to defend those surpluses. So we began to have standing armies for the first time and then began to have organized warfare for the first time. Suddenly paternity was important, knowing who your children were to pass them along. And so we began to have more restrictive sexualities that benefited the land-owning men. And so within you know, about a 3,000 year period of time from the Fertile Crescent to China to everywhere, we started switching to this means of food production, which changed our social organization and seemed to really produce what a lot of religious mythology refers to as the fall of humanity. This fall from this initial kind of unitive way of seeing illustrated by the tree of life into this very dualistic, binary, and contentious way of living exemplified by the knowledge of good and evil. And suddenly it was more important than ever to try to figure out what was right and what was wrong. It was a heightened sense of inner subjectivity of the human person, but at the expense of alienation in to, of, from the earth and from tribe and, and from spirit. And so I refer to it as we went from being a fourfold connection of spirit, self, other, and world to a fourfold alienation. But we suddenly didn't feel connected to any of this. And we've been in that long adolescence as a species ever since, where we feel separated, we feel angsty, we're, we're breaking our stuff, just like an adolescent might, except our stuff is planet Earth. And I think that what we're being called to from the future is integration, 
what does it mean to have a fourfold reunion of spirit, self, other, and world that's not going back to the garden. It's honoring our, our growth as a species. It's honoring our growing pains. But it's saying, how can we integrate that into a mature adulthood? And I personally think that the Jesus narrative and gems uh, within Christian spirituality have a lot to teach us from that. But I also think there's a lot to unlearn because all of our religious traditions, whether in the East or the West, they all grew up in the midst of this story of separation. And so these technologies, these beliefs, these practices, these community forms, they all attempt to be the cure and the healing, but they all contain a little bit of the poison as well, of the shame and the alienation. And so it's a real task of discernment to figure out what are the life-giving practices and stories and community forms that really can help us integrate uh, mature as a species. And I think that there is a real kind of urgency uh, to this. And if there's one critique I have of liberal religion is it tended to say, it's all good. Everything's okay. Just the way it is. Whereas the fire breathing fundamentalists were like, no, it's not okay. We need to repent and sackcloth and ashes and walk the sawdust trail. But it was about a sort of imagined hell as opposed to the hell on earth that we're creating right now. So I think there, there might even be a room for a sort of a postmodern street preacher that says, repent, the end is near. But it's not about the wrath of God. It's about our own wrath magnified and projected back onto ourselves. Yeah, and I think a lot of us are experiencing t- tastes of that in our society. We're tasting what it looks like when we, when we do, you know, figuratively speaking, eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, just saying, Mm -hmm. this is right. And this is wrong. I'm right. You're wrong. This is truth. This is lies. And what that produces is a world of anxiety, fear, and shame. And like you said, you know, people, instead of seeing themselves as, as imperfect, but with original goodness in us, we see ourselves as broken and lacking and sinful and um, any type of goodness has to come from without us, outside of us. And we outsource our morality. We outsource our goodness. We outsource to something outside of ourselves, which like you said, there's an element of truth there. But, you know, like Richard Rohr says, you know, returning to original goodness instead of original badness has been, you know, the the struggle for many of us to to unwind that because it does run so deep. It runs that shame and that 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 feeling of brokenness runs very deep. It, it's true. The way I like to say it is there is original grace that is embedded in our muscle memory as a species. Again, even if I were talking to a complete materialist, empiricist, non-theist, I would say you know, depending on when you decide that humanity started, whether you're going back a couple million years to our earliest hominid ancestors, or whether you're just going back a couple hundred thousand years to, you know, some of our Paleolithic ancestors, let's just say 200,000 years. For 200,000 years, we knew how to be creatures living in a, in a sort of mutual relationship with the earth. Just as 
you know, a squirrel does not have to go to classes on how to be a squirrel and a dog doesn't have to go to classes on how to be a dog. They, they just have squirrel nature. They just have dog nature and they live it out. Humans had human nature, disinhibited from shame, knowing how to be who we were, living, loving, dying. And, and we, we have this in our, our DNA. And it's only been the last six to 8,000 years, a mere fraction of that time, an, an eye blink of geological time, that we have been confused. We have been demonstrably broken, if we want to put it that way. But it, I, I don't, you know, like, like the Eastern Orthodox, I don't impute uh, guilt on that. It's sort of like children who aren't quite sure what to do. You know, I'm a, I'm a dad. If, if one of my kids doesn't know what to do, I can see how that harms them. I can offer corrective action, but I'm not blaming them. They're a kid. Of course they don't know. Of course, a baby species doesn't always know what to do. So I, I agree with you. It is so helpful to you know, take away the stigma of this sort of absolute moralistic condemnation on, on this. But at the same time, I, I understand why sometimes conservatives are exasperated by liberals who seem willfully oblivious at times to sometimes our, our proclivities to, to be partial rather than whole. And to say, no, that's a real thing. And it really is a habit that's developed in time. But our muscle memory as a species is much deeper than that. Don't get me wrong, 8,000 years of doing something in a, in a space of alienation and competition and dualism is a lot to unlearn. But at the same time, we have 200,000 years of, of muscle memory, not to mention this sort of forward-thinking future grace, this kind of grace that comes to us from tomorrow, as process theologians might say, that you know God is the event calling us from the future and luring us into the beloved community. And, and I see the image of New Jerusalem in our eschatological writings and Revelation is a beautiful metaphor for that. Because it contains the elements of Eden, it contains the tree of life, the river of life, the gold, the silver, the precious stones, the things that are in Genesis chapters one and two are in the final two chapters of, of Revelation, but they're not inert. They don't, they're not a garden that we go back to. They become a city, but not just any city. It's a garden city. So it's different than the kinds of cities that are throughout the Bible, beginning with Babel, that are often seen as hotbeds of violence and, and sedition and the very worst. But at the same time, it is a city. It honors our, our progression as a species and the ways in which we've grown and even the ways in which we've maybe regressed. But it says all of that is included, but it's in this garden city. And when I think of living cities, I do think of the permaculture design movement. I think of various ways where we honor our species' innate ability to innovate and to imagine new possibilities, but doing so in harmony with the natural world and in harmony with what is. And that's the kind of uh, Christian faith slash being human that I want to live into, I want to advocate for, I want to make more available for, for my children is this, this very life-affirming, honoring our creatureliness as well as our divinity way of, of co-creating a better tomorrow. And it really is urgent. We really don't have a lot of time. And I think that the, this current pandemic is illustrative of how quickly things can change. And, you know, who, how do we want to claim our own power? You know, we don't want to just sort of abdicate our, our power into the totalitarian whims of, you know, the current elite. So how can we take our power back in, in beautiful and local ways that are also networked with this wider global body of, of imagining a new way forward? 
That's beautiful. I love the way you put that. And I, I think it's a good way to segue to wrapping this up is tell us about the things uh, and the books and the work that you're doing so that people can either uh, get on board to help and assist or, or at least engage in what you're doing and, and, and benefit from it. Tell us, tell us what you're doing and, and where can people find out about it? Absolutely. You know, as we say in the South, Lord willing and the crick don't rise. I am, we are trying to get rewilder off the ground by the end of this year. It certainly has been thrown for a little bit of a loop with, you know, a global pandemic. But you can see that the skeleton of the site now at rewilder.net. Though, if you want to, you know, stay in touch on the latest developments, I would recommend if you're listening to this to sign up for, for my email newsletter which you can get at mikemorell.org, O-R-G forward slash bonus chapter, which as an aside will give you a bonus chapter to the divine dance. It's something that I exclusively wrote telling my own story of this really powerful mystical encounter I had with God as Trinity showing up as the relationships in my life. And it also includes a few uh, chapters of the, of the full book with Father Richard and a few exercises that folks can try at home. And Rewilder, as we're developing it, our, our idea is on the wide end of the funnel, we are also wanting to podcast and talk to deep ecologists, anthropologists, spiritual teachers, people who have different pieces of this puzzle that I've, I've briefly described for you of humanity's fourfold alienation and fourfold reunion. And, and to really explore the deep lifelong research that so many brilliant people have done, but most people have never heard about and really make those that life work accessible to, to whoever wants to listen and, you know, to be freely available. And on the narrow end of the funnel, we're wanting to create experiences. And again, you know, pandemic willing in person, but, you know, experiences where people can take a retreat to touch on different technologies of reconnection, different uh, modes of reconnection, so that we can look at ways to reconnect to spirit, self, other, and world. And there are these very practical ways that we can enter into each of these reconnections as a reference experience, as a, a temporary community that we create together for three days or a week at a time, and that'll fire up our imaginations and our own muscle memory to where we can go back into our communities and say, hmm, how might I want to live differently here and now? And, and so that is the, you know, the end goal that is in the works and would love to stay in touch with anybody as we uh, begin to roll this out. That's awesome. Mike, thank you for taking the time and uh, taking time away from your family. But I appreciate your your work. I appreciate your writing and everything that you do. Thank you for, for thinking. That's the main thing that, that I want to I wanna just, just extend to you. Just thank you for thinking and, and pushing the boundaries of, of, of what it really means to, to be faithful to a tradition while at the same time um, looking to the future and being open to say, what is the most human way that we can connect universally while at the same time, not giving up um, some of the basic tenets of our faith and, and engage with that in a, in a, in a real practical way, human way and transformative way. So thank you. Thank you for thinking deeply about that. Mm, You're welcome, Bob. And thank you for creating a space where these kind of vital conversations can happen. Absolutely. I appreciate it. Mm-hmm. All right, Mike, we'll, we'll stay strong and uh, hopefully we'll talk to you again real soon. Sounds perfect. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.